No one was harmed in the filming of this sequence. The shit you and your friends do in a pub is what I do and somehow get paid for it. That's my natural hairline there now. Comedians are, yeah, we're very judgmental. I don't really think that the American people are more polarized now than they were 10 years ago. Hey there, you're welcome to another episode of The Devil Mike Sheridan. I'm Mike Sheridan. So the following conversation you're about to watch or listen to is firmly on my favourites list. Mike Grinder is a fascinating, smart, honest and deeply complex man who has lived an incredible life so far. It really didn't begin in many ways until after he left Scientology 15 odd years ago. Mike has a new book called A Billion Years and it's a deep dive into not just the salacious stuff you read about online, but also how he was essentially born into Scientology and the early days of the organisation when the numbers were far more plentiful. The book is available from all good bookshops and Mike assures me they're working on the Audible version being available in this part of the world too at the moment. Don't forget to like, subscribe or review if you're listening as a podcast. It really helps the show. Manscaped is taking over Ireland just in time for Christmas. Their life-changing hygiene products are now available in all Tesco Ireland shops. It's also time for fresh ball fall. It's the season of pumpkin spice and making sure your crotch looks nice. That means sipping arters in the fall breeze and using Manscaped products to trim your balls with ease. We don't say fall or uh, arters, but it was hilarious, so I said it anyway. Now make sure to swing by and pick up their signature lawnmower, the most brilliant ball trimmer to bless the motherland. That's here, Ireland. Join the 6 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped by swinging by any Tesco Ireland or going to manscaped.com for 20% off and free shipping with the code DELF. I have been using Manscaped products for a couple of years now. And now I gotta say, don't sleep on the weed whacker. Nose and ear hair creeps up on you. And by the time someone says it to you, it's probably already too late. You know, you're known as that hairy faced person then and not in a good way. Both the lawnmower and the weed whacker, that's the lawnmower, it's excellent. Use skin safe technology and are waterproof so you can use them in the shower. So check out Tesco for Manscaped products or if you want to order online with free shipping, go to manscaped.com. Support the show, support the Delve by using the code Delve at checkout and get 20% off. Enjoy the conversation with Mike Grinder. Thanks again for taking the time, Mike. Uh, I'm about two thirds of the way through the book and like I, I enjoy probably isn't the right word because you're, <laughs> you're at a very difficult place I think at uh particularly where I am in the book now it's kind of it's in the early not so I suppose to initially start can you explain the difference between somebody who's in the Sea Org somebody who's in Sea Org and somebody who's maybe in the celeb center or a Scientologist that lives outside of the organization yes um there are sort of three categories of Scientologists Mike there is what's called a parishioner, which is a Scientologist that lives in their own house, comes and goes to the Scientology organization, pays their money, and gets their Scientology services. Then there is what's called a staff member, who is someone that works in the local Scientology organization, but lives in their own home and drives their own car and, you know, theoretically has weekends off or evenings, works nine to five. 
And then, and those are the people that you see in that, that Scientology center outside of Dublin that they built there or bought and renovated. Then there is the Sea Org members and the Sea Org members are like the, the sort of inner circle elite, um, most dedicated Scientologists that are kind of like um, a Catholic religious order or the, the people that are at the Vatican. They are the people who devote themselves full-time to working to forward the aims of Scientology, and they live communally and eat communally and work seven days a week, 16 hours a day, 365 days a year, and sign a billion-year contract. Um, that's what the title of the book refers to. The, it, it's really an eternal commitment to achieving the aims of Scientology. And those people, the Sea Org members, of which I was one, are the people that occupy the highest echelons in the Scientology hierarchy. You know, it's a very hierarchical uh, organization like uh, most, and it has a headquarters that used to be in California. These days, it's sort of more in Clearwater, Florida, uh, just because that's where David Miscavige is hanging out now. Um, and the top people in Scientology are all required to be members of the SEA organization. So you go into detail in the book about some of the things that you had to do when you were in the Sea Org. And you weren't quite born into Scientology, but you were very young when your family got into Scientology. So when you're in the Sea Org and you're doing these, I mean, the tasks sound horrendous, some of the things that you had to do and the sleeping conditions and everything else. What are your instincts telling you? And is there a constant battle in your own head? Is there a back and forth about how right this is, how wrong this is, or is it just pure acceptance? Um, well, ultimately, it got to the point of right and wrong. To begin with, it was also a question of right and wrong. Um, but what happens is you convince yourself or are convinced that those questions or concerns are of little or no importance, that there is a grander, a grander scheme, a larger objective to be accomplished, and that your personal comfort and well-being and uh happiness are very much subsumed by this grander idea that the entire planet that every man woman and child on earth is whether they know it or not counting on you to save them from uh an eternity of damnation and that this concept this idea that Scientology provides the only path, the only hope for all of mankind to live in eternity in spiritual fulfillment and happiness is a, a very, very uh, important motivating factor that tends to sort of eradicate doubts and thoughts that this is just crazy. You know, what are we doing here? Why am I putting up with this shit? There's absolutely no reason to, to be doing it. And then you sort of stop yourself and go, yeah, but 
what's happening to me isn't that important in the big picture. What is happening to every man, woman, and child on earth is what's really important. So, you know, I just need to sort of grin and bear it and carry on uh, doing the job that I know needs to be done to, to save everybody. And there is another factor in Scientology, which is really, really important and is hammered in very early on, which is the idea that if there's something that is going on bad in your life, or you're experiencing something that you're not enjoying, you need to look within to find out what you have done to cause that to happen. And that it's not outside factors that are acting badly towards you. It's that you have acted badly and not relieved yourself and confessed to those things and that that is causing bad shit to happen to you now. So always in Scientology, if you have the idea, well, I don't like the fact that Miscavige is punching me in the face, like I'm not gonna stick around for this, your instant thought is, wait a minute, what did I do to cause him to punch me in the face? Because if I can figure that out, the punching in the face will stop. And that is the mindset of a Scientologist. There's, there's almost a self-help thing there, right? And that's what seems to be the worm on the fishing rod for a lot of people to get people in. It's that look within. If you look within, you can self-improve. Well, Scientology won't let you take credit for your successes in life either. It's down to them. That's what they say. Yes, that's, you're, you're exactly right, Mike. And there is a lot about Scientology that, like, like I've said often, if everything about Scientology was complete crap, nobody would be involved in it. There is a lot that, as you say, the worm on the fishing line, there is a lot that Hubbard took from other places and sort of reformulated or restated or said, look, here's my, here's my take on this. Um, and, you know, many of those things are good concepts. It's not a bad concept um, in moderation to consider that you are somehow cause over your life, that you're not just a victim of circumstances. That's, that's common to a lot of, you know, philosophers and, and people, you know, particularly in the self-help world, that's like a pretty common thing. And it's generally accepted and people find that helps them and they stop, you know, feeling like they just can't do anything about what their condition and because it's all happening from without. And that's a good thing. In Scientology, though, it's taken beyond being a good thing into an absolute. And the absolutism of Scientology is part of the problem. It is black and white. It is, this is what Hubbard says, so you must do it exactly like this. Hubbard says, if you do it exactly the way that he laid it out every single time, then there will be 100% guaranteed results. And that, you know, every, every organized, every, every religion, and, and I am loath to categorize Scientology as a religion these days, um, 
even though it did come to Dublin and argue on at the, the Theosophical Society at Trinity College in a debate about Scientology as a religion, um, I, I, I sort of lost my train there as I went off into one of my, you know, <laughs> in, they're, endless they're sidebars. Well, they're, they're all informative, and I've watched a bunch of interviews with you. It's always informative, so so go off on as many sidebars as you like. <laughs> anyway, I was going to say, it, the, the idea that that religions generally or organizations have these sort of factions, and you have these fundamentalist factions, the, the, the fundamentalist factions of the Muslims, the fundamentalist factions of the Jews, the fundamentalist factions of the Catholic. They're like outliers who are, you know, to the normal world, they are, they're pretty, pretty weird. Scientology is all fundamentalist. There's no such thing as a moderate Scientologist or a, a, you know, a kind of a Sundays only Scientologist. You're all in. You're, you're all in. And you are all in at the insistence of L. Ron Hubbard that that's how Scientology works. You're either in or out. We'd rather, his, his sort of infamous quote is, we'd rather have you dead than incapable as a Scientologist. We would, we, you know, it's very, very hardcore. And so everything is very, very black and white and uh, rigid. And so this idea that what did you do that caused your bad circumstance is an absolute, absolute law in Scientology for everybody except L. Ron Hubbard or now David Miscavige. Like if shit happens to them, or the organization, it's always some other person's fault. They're never at fault for anything. But everybody else, if something bad happens to you, what did you do that caused that to happen? I don't think people realize either that you would have been on the sea or you would have been on the boat, the Apollo with Ron Herbert a lot as well. So you were around them. You talk about bumping into him initially in the book as well, about being in a hurry. So did he... I mean, I guess you've had kind of a passive experience in a lot of ways because he's just levitated to this high, high level. But do you believe he believed everything he was saying on these thousands of books he was writing all of it? Um, that's a terrific question, Mike. And my answer is, I think that he ultimately convinced himself to believe that. Um and I think he just bought his own bullshit. Like, I, I don't know if you're up to the part in the book where I talk about what he was like at the end of his life, but he was still running around trying to find these supposed body thetans. Body thetans is something that he came up with, that these little spirits that are attached to your body and influence the way you think and act and blah, blah, blah. And he's still running around using an e-meter, the Scientology lie detector device, to try and get rid of them because they were driving him nuts. Well, if he didn't buy his own bullshit, he would have just gone, you know, the, this, is, this is stupid. Well, like, what the hell am I doing? This has got nothing to do with anything. So, yeah, I guess 
he did. I think he started out telling told tales and stories. I mean, that is what, El, if I had to define L. Ron Hubbard in one word, it would be storyteller. And then second word would probably be con man, storyteller con man. He was a good storyteller. That was what he made a living at. He told stories about himself from the youngest age. There is a, an absolutely brilliant book by Russell Miller called Barefaced Messiah. And it is an unauthorized biography of L. Ron Hubbard. And Russell Miller's pretty clear in there, his sort of begrudging respect for the fact that Hubbard could spin a tale. And he spun tales about himself. He spun tales about his experiences, about his, quote, research, everything. And that bled into Dianetics and Scientology. And, you know, I think that in the end, he probably also believed that he was a, a World War II war hero and that he had, you know, ridden Bronx at the age of two and been a blood brother of the Blackfeet Indian. All these things that have been disproven over and over, but he has said over and over, I think he probably, you know, convinced himself that they were all true at the end, you know, towards the end of his life. One of the more nefarious things from an outsider looking in is, and it's repeatable over and over again, is what Scientology does to people who leave and how it reacts to people who leave. Like I took down some of the stuff from the book. There's a, there's a video of a garbage truck. There's a video on, on YouTube of a garbage truck, a guy handing trash, your trash, to a guy with a ponytail in a car. There's a camera in a birdhouse in the neighborhood. Um, there's another one, like, I know they weaponized the Me Too movement. They kind of used that topic at the time to, to turn that against you. And you know this because, I mean, you were involved in some of those shenanigans when you were in it. So you know better than anybody, right? How, yes. how like, from a personal level, right? Because I've looked at so many interviews, which are what you were like on camera back then. You look so much fresher now. You almost look, <laughs> you almost look younger now. What kind of toll did it take on you then when you were kind of, you know, a part of those uh, campaigns on people? And what kind of toll did it take on you when you were the person that was affected by them? Well, I, I think the toll on me when I was a part of them was greater than the toll on me when I was the receipt point of them, frankly. Um, you know, yeah, I did look terrible. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating properly. I was, you know, in the hole, the, the Scientology prison. And, you know, I look back, Mike, at the interview, the, the last interview, John Sweeney caught me on camera in Tottenham Court Road in London, uh, sort of asking me about David Miscavige beating me up, which is a, a, a very pivotal moment in my life. It was just a few days after that that I actually escaped. I look terrible. I look like I just walked out of, you know, a concentration camp or something. I'm gray and gaunt and black, big black circles under my eyes. I, you know, and I was feeling that. And that was the, not just the weight of, you know, the the physical deprivations, it was the weight of the emotional toll that this had been taking on me. 
And then, you know, I knew what was coming when I started speaking out because I know, I know exactly what L. Ron Hubbard has written about how you go about dealing with someone like me. That was what I had done for 20 years or more, dealt with people like me when I was in charge of the, the Department of Scientology that did that. So I, I, it was, you know, nothing came as any big surprise and in fact, the reason that I was able to video those things was because I kind of knew what was happening. I knew what they would be doing, and I just kind of started documenting it. And nowadays, they, they don't tend to have, you know, private investigators following me to the supermarket or to my kid's school or taking my garbage or that sort of stuff because... I put it on, on YouTube and then we used it in the aftermath show and showed some of it in there. And it just became like, it wasn't creating an impact or an effect on me of shutting me up, which was what they were hoping, uh, but it was actually blowing back on them. So they sort of stopped, but they do continue to do online smears and you know, you refer to the Me Too movement. They started this whole thing about how I had, you know, basically assaulted my ex-wife. And that's an incident that is described in the book and is all over the internet and was interestingly caught on audio recording by John Sweeney, the B same BBC reporter, like, I have quite a history with John Sweeney. He's become a very dear friend of mine. He came to my wedding, in fact. Uh, but, <laughs> That's brilliant. But he he um, he was, in, like, towards the end of my career in Scientology, John Sweeney played a huge role. And then subsequently, I did another program with him to sort of make good on the one that I had done when I was in Scientology. And then... At the end of making that program, he was fact-checking with me when this incident occurred of, of these seven Scientologists showing up to harass me and scream at me in while I was standing in the parking lot of the doctor's office. And they have converted that into somehow uh, some assault that I committed on my ex-wife, who was one of the people that came there. Anyway, I don't want to get into that story in great detail. But that continues to this day, and the story has evolved from I attacked her to they could hear the bones cracking to she suffered permanent neurological damage to she's crippled for life to she can't feel her arms anymore. And it, it's just like keeps, <laughs> keeps going and expanding, and they use the daughter that is my daughter, who is still remains in the Sea Organization, who the book is actually addressed to, uh, to churn out these POW-style, you know, North Korean videos where she sits and reads a script about what a rotten father I am um, or was, as if uh, I'm not cognizant of the fact. In fact, the book is pretty much, look, I was a shitty father. I was a Sea Org member. And Sea Org members are not allowed to be fathers. Your parents were the Sea Org. And this is how you were raised. And if I knew then what I know now, that would never have happened. And that's kind of how I start the book. Here is, 
Dear Locke, I'm sorry for having put you where you are, where you have no free will. And I am doing everything I can to try and extricate you from that, to give you the opportunity to think and look for yourself. So, yeah, I, you know, that stuff, it's, it's, you can't say that it's not upsetting because it's certainly upsetting to see your own children saying very horrible, nasty lies about you and putting them on the internet and trying to, to stir up trouble for you. But on the other hand, I understand what it is that's happening and why they are doing it. And it's certainly not stopping me. So, you know, I, I know the game. I know what they're trying to do. If, if they can get into my head and make me worry about continuing to speak out, then they've won. So I'm not going to let that happen. You think it hit, I know because I was looking at a video, Leah Remini's nearly or just over nine years out of Scientology now. Was it DEFCON 5, knowing what you know and how the organization works, when a celebrity such as Leah left and started speaking out? And how likely do you think that is to happen again? Oh, I think it's very likely to happen again. I mean, I think that that as the world of Scientology shrinks, which it is, it is shrinking, um, there will be more people who will come to realize that what they were told and what they were promised was not true. And what the breaking point is for anybody is, you know, very, very unique. Like nobody has the same things that upset them or caused them to go, okay, I've had enough. That's the last straw. Everybody's got their own thing and their own point of, of breaking, it eventually happens. And when it does, it is usually the accumulation of a lot of things. And then the one final thing that's like, okay, that's enough. I'm done. And as soon as that happens and people get out of that bubble of thinking and controlled view and you know, confirmation bias and all the stuff that happens inside the world of Scientology and they start looking, there is now enormous amounts of information out there. And usually what happens is people start reading this stuff or watching videos or looking at Going Clear or the Aftermath show or whatever and go, oh my God, that happened to me too. Oh my God, I'm not crazy. Oh my God, it wasn't my fault that that happened. I didn't pull that in. I, you know, they took my money, they tricked me, they did this, they broke up my family, whatever. And I'm not crazy. I'm, there's all these other people that are just like me. And when that happens, that's when you see people go, okay, I'm going to speak up about this. Some people never do. But many have now taken the path of it's it's sort of become um, somewhat safe to speak up about Scientology. For a long time, it, the the impression was created that it's a very unsafe, dangerous thing to do to speak up ever about anything that's going on in Scientology or say things they don't like. But I think that that has changed in the last 10 years and people now understand 
they're kind of a toothless tiger. Yeah, they do a bunch of nasty stuff to people, but they really can't, they can't shut anybody up if someone wants to speak. And I don't want to keep you too much longer, Mike. Again, I really, really appreciate the time. Do you think if Miscavige had not become, and this is a completely hypothetical situation, so I appreciate that first of all, but if he hadn't have taken over 1987 when Hubbard died, would you think you would still be in Scientology today or would that breaking point have been something different and you would have realized? Well, it might have been something different, Mike, but I don't know. I think that probably I would still be there. And the reason I say that is because it was much harder for me to accept that everything about about Scientology was bullshit. It was far easier to go and look, I in disagreement with what Miscavige is doing, I'm in disagreement with how the organization is being run. Because when I first escaped, I still considered myself a Scientologist. And that took a while for that layer to come be peeled off the onion. And like I said, Russell Miller's book was a big part of accomplishing that. And then I started realizing, wait a minute, you know, how about we, this is a lot of bullshit here. But it took me a while. And had I not been out of the Sea Org, I don't think I would have accomplished that. But I don't think I would have left the Sea Org if it hadn't been for Miscavige. So, you know, I know it's a hypothetical question. Maybe something would have come up subsequent to that, that that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me, even so. But certainly the, the influence of David Miscavige in getting, pushing me effectively out the door of the Sea Org then allowed me to have enough distance that I could start getting my head around the biggest subject of Scientology. Do you think Miscavige's will ultimately be the catalyst for the downfall of Scientology? Because there's what, there's 25,000 25, members now? They've more yeah. money than members, way more money than members, more property than members. And whereas in the 70s, 80s, that was kind of, that was blown up, even with the most famous man in the world, you know, very prominent member. Right. And do I think he will be? I think he is. I think he is the catalyst for the destruction of Scientology. But I'm not sure that anybody else would have. He, he may be, he may be uh, speeding the process along. I think that once Hubbard was gone, the inevitable decline of Scientology was going to set in. Because, like I said before, Hubbard dictated that the only person who could formulate the policies and activities and beliefs and practices of Scientology was him, and he is now dead. So they can't change anything. So they are an organization that is stuck in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in the way that they operate, even the the attitudes that they have about social issues, about gay rights, about welfare and all that sort of stuff is all Hubbard shit from the 50s. And that's they're stuck with that and they can't change it. And so that is going to just naturally cause a decline as society sort of 
you know, moves forward, Scientology stuck. And Miscavige is a sociopath, so he is, you know, doing the things that are good for Miscavige, not necessarily doing the things that are good for anybody in Scientology. So it's its decline is pretty rapid at this point and will continue to be rapid. But, you know, if you got three or four billion dollars at your disposal, it takes a while for that to uh, to be used up. Mike, I can't thank you enough for the time. The book is remarkable. Uh, it really is. And I, I, you can't underestimate the importance of you speaking out since, Lee is speaking out since, and other people and and kind of talking about your experiences there because there's a commonality with all of the experiences. And I think that's what people see when they do come out. I, I, I really appreciate your time too, Mike. I absolutely love Ireland. It is one of my favorite places to visit. I wish I could get back there sooner than probably I will. I don't know when that will be, but when I do, I'll look you up and we'll take you out for a for a pint because it is literally, literally, my wife and I absolutely love Ireland. We really do. That's great. I just to wanted hear. to get that in. Just wanted to get that in <laughs> as, a final, as a final word because it it we tell everybody like I have a big Dublin t-shirt and Dublin uh, sweatshirt that I wear to my son's soccer matches and and, and out and about. And people are always like, oh, where'd you, where'd you get that? I said, I got it in Dublin. You've got to go visit. It's the, it's the most amazing country to go visit. I love it. We'd love, we, well, we'd love to have you back. So come back soon. 